All right, let me start with our next speaker. Our next speaker is Mike Ash. Mike Ash is the author of Shaken Faith, I should say Michael Ash. He's the author of Shaken Faith Syndrome, Strengthening One's Testimony in the Face of Criticism and Doubt. Also, A Faith and Reason, 80 Evidences Supporting the Prophet Joseph Smith. And I just have to put a plug in for that little book. It's a little short book. It's easy for teens to read even. It's a nice, nice Book of Mormon Evidences type of book. Um, and he also wrote Bamboozled by the CES Letter. He's a former columnist for the Deseret News in the Mormon Times. He's also been a frequent contributor to the online blogs, Meridian Magazine, as well as Mormon Hub. Mike has been published in the Ensign, Sunstone Magazine, Dialogue, a Journal of Mormon Thought, in the Farms Review, and most recently contributed to a chapter in Coford's, books, Coford's book, Perspectives in Mormon Theology, Apologetics. Mike and his wife, Chris, live in Ogden, and are the parents of three daughters, and the grandparents of six children, grandchildren. And I have to add, this is not in his bio, but he is an awesome photographer, and if you want to get some good pictures from him, he's, he's really got some really cool ones. So with that, we'll turn it over to Mike Ash. Well, good afternoon. I hope that the, uh, the after-lunch crowd is still wide awake. Um, it's been a wonderful uh, first half of the first day. Been real excited with the uh, presentations that have been given. In fact, like the rest of you, I heard uh, uh, Neil's presentation, the um, first speaker this morning, his presentation, I heard it for the first time, just like everybody else in the room here did. Um, but I'm going to use it as a launching pad for my own presentation. Um, before I do, I want to just tell a little story. There were a couple of buddies who were out hunting, and while they were out hiking, one of the gentlemen collapsed, and his friend ran over, and it didn't look like he was breathing, and his eyes were all glassy. So he whipped out his cell phone and called 911, and the operators, you know, how can I help you? And he says, my, my friend, we're out in the woods, and he just collapsed. He's dead. I don't know what to do. And the operator says, well, I can probably help you, but, you know, first we should probably make sure he's really dead. So the phone is silent, and then you hear a gunshot, and he comes back on, what now? <laughs> and there's a point to that story, which I'll get to in a minute here, but uh, I'm a firm believer that truth is truth regardless of the source. Oops. Joseph Smith once said, one of the grand fundamental principles of Mormonism is to receive truth, let it come from whence it may. While no endeavor in which humans are engaged can be infallible, I find that science, as we use it as an umbrella term for many disciplines, typically moves forward in our understanding of the cosmos and, our, and how our planet and life evolved in its current state. Scientific discoveries shed increasing light on how we humans fit into the world. While scientific findings have at times contributed to faltering testimonies, I personally find that science illuminates belief in positive ways and sheds light on obscure or misunderstood areas of religious understanding. I'm pleased to see the many uh, um, addresses at this fair conference, both today and tomorrow, that, that uh, are dealing with, with science and some real serious and interesting scholarship. My interest in these and other scientifically related topics and how they can be understood from within a framework of belief 
compelled me a couple of years ago to begin a book-length project addressing this general theme and how Latter-day Saints can embrace, rather than distress, over scientific discoveries and their sometimes apparent clash with religious beliefs. While engaged in my project, which probably has at least another year to go before I, I finish my first draft, I've taken a particular fascination with cognitive science and related fields such as psychology and neuroscience. In my book, Shaken Face Syndrome, I spent some time discussing cognitive dissonance, or thought disharmony, and how we, we humans typically react and respond to information that threatens or challenges our religious beliefs. My continued studies in cognitive sciences highlighted the fact that there are interesting and important convergences between how we understand and embrace or reject scientific precepts and how the recognition of our cognitive limitations can illuminate our understanding about the gospel or the history of how the gospel has been received. Cognitive studies have shed some interesting light on how and why people often do the things they do, think the things they think, or react in the ways they react. The joke that I told earlier about a guy shooting his buddy was a good example, exaggerated obviously, about how people might get things mixed up. Sometime in the 1950s, my grandfather, like many Americans of his day, bought a first television. The images, of course, were in black and white. Then, in the early 1960s, color TV began to appear in the market. My grandfather wanted a color TV, but he didn't want to spend the money replacing his properly working set, so he continued to watch his shows in black and white. One day, a door-to-door -door salesman claimed to have a product that would attach to the front of his black and white set and convert it to color. This was low cost, so my grandfather bought the product. <laughs> and this is real. Some of you might remember these. They had them. Basically, it's a frame that would attach on, and you had blue for the sky and pink for the faces and green for the grass. Um, needless to say, my grandfather wasn't happy with this purchase. My grandfather's inability to watch proper color TV wasn't because color shows weren't being broadcast. The problem was that his TV was of the older variety. It didn't have the technology to render and display the color images that were being broadcast. Every human being has limits, both physical and cognitive limits. No matter how fit you are, you cannot run 100 miles per hour. Even if you can dunk a basketball, you cannot, unassisted, jump 40 feet in the air. Even if you are the most brilliant person alive, have a photographic memory, and have read every book you've ever touched, you cannot know the answers to everything or solve every problem. Our cognitive weaknesses include ignorance, misunderstanding, inflexibility, bias, short-sightedness, and even stupidity. As neuroscientists study the brain, psychologists study human behavior, it becomes increasingly apparent that, there are, that we are masters at making assumptions. Brother Erickson talked a little bit about this in his talk a little earlier. While we are certainly capable of deep thought, analyzing data, and weighing evidence, most of the time our brains need to make snap decisions in order to navigate the world. We typically don't have the time to think everything through on every decision we make. Much of our lives are set to autopilot, with our actions being almost mechanical. As with modern aircraft autopilot systems, in order for the brain to make these nearly mechanical snap decisions, it must rely on programs or templates that guide the decisions. As we encounter a variety of things and circumstances in our everyday lives, our brains look for patterns to which it can assign the incoming information. As agnostic researcher Michael, Dr. Michael Shermer explains, 
The brain is a belief engine. From sensory data flowing in through the senses, the brain naturally begins to look for and find patterns, and then infuses those patterns with meaning. The first process I call patternicity, the tendency to find meaningful patterns in both meaningful and meaningless data. The second process I call agenticity, the tendency to infuse patterns with meaning, intention, and agency. We can't help it. Our brains evolved to connect the dots of our world into meaningful patterns that explain why things happen. These meaningful patterns become beliefs, and these beliefs shape our understanding of reality. Our brains automatically connect the dots, engage in patternicity when encountering various forms of input. We may, for example, walk through a dark alley and see what appears to be a person standing behind a dumpster. The hair on our neck might stand up as our flight or flight response begins to weigh our options. As we draw closer, however, we discover that what we thought was a person is actually an old rolled-up carpet that someone has set against the wall. When it, when it comes to visual input, our brains use intrinsic patterns, intrinsic, excuse me, patterns to rapidly correlate fuzzy or unfamiliar objects with things that make sense to cognitive patterns, past memories, expectations, and worldviews. We especially, for example, like faces. Studies indicate that from birth, if not earlier, human babies are attracted to the general template of a human face, three dots that represent the two eyes and the mouth. By four to six months old, a baby's brain can process face recognition faster than the recognition of other objects. This face-finding process remains active in the normal brain through one's life and is the reason we still see faces in places we shouldn't see faces, like in the clouds or other, ab other abstract arrangements. This phenomena is known as pareidolia, or what Shermer referred to as patternicity. This intuitive an inescapable cognitive feature serves as both a benefit and a liability and ultimately comes from our evolutionary heritage. As anthropologist Dr. Stuart Guthrie explains, it is better, there we go, it is better for a hiker to mistake a boulder for a bear than to mistake a bear for a boulder. In other words, generating a false positive, a false pattern, even when such a pattern doesn't actually exist, is better for the survival of the, of the species. Animals which make connections to false patterns are more likely to live and pass on their genes and pattern connecting proclivities to their progeny. Even without an obvious benefit, however, we still can't help but see parallels in some patterns. As Thomas Gilovich points out, we do not want to see a man in the moon. We do not profit from the illusion. We just see it. Pareidolia is associated with intuitive brain assumptions about what we see and what our brains expect to see from our environment and past experiences. In other words, the brain makes assumptions about the visual data coming from our eyes. And we see with our brains, not with our eyes. Studies suggest the brain process of interpreting data into images is apparently so difficult that it nearly defies the impossible. Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker calls the process inverse optics, which basically means to reverse engineer an image, including the shape, texture, size, and so forth. Um, inverse optics, notes Pinker, is what engineers call an ill-posed problem. It literally has no solution, yet your brain does it every time you open the refrigerator and pull out a jar. How can this be? The answer is that the brain supplies the missing information, information about the world we evolved in and how it reflects light. Um, if the visual brain assumes that it is living in a certain kind of world, an evenly lit world, 
made mostly of rigid parts with smooth, uniformly colored surfaces, it can make good assumptions about what is out there. According to Pinker, our brains are programmed, thanks to evolution, with templates wherein the eye-brain combo assembles data to reflect what it assumes it's supposed to look like. Since planet Earth, he says, more or less uh, is, is met with even illumination assumptions, the brain naturally uses those assumptions when building the templates. The assumptions, however, are still in force even when we change things up, which results in illusions. In an article in Scientific America, researchers show how brain, our brains can interpret excuse me, even 2D shapes based on the assumptions of light and shadows. And uh, I'll show you a couple of slides. For instance, in this first slide here, uh, the researchers write, the disks are ambiguous. You can either see the top row as convex spheres or eggs lit from the left, and the bottom row is cavities, or vice versa. So if you look at these, you can t you can, your brain can switch back and forth and decide, are these eggs or are these uh, you know, convex uh, spheres? In the next slide, don't the left ones jump right out at you as the eggs where you've got the divots to the right? Your brain's automatically making those assumptions based on lighting. And it's pretty easy, even with them scattered there, based on the lighting, most brains will automatically latch on to the differences and you'll have the either uh, um, divots or the egg shapes. Okay, we, it's, it's not easy for us to um, remove ourselves from those types of assumptions that the brain is making. Now, the coloring of some animals has evolved to leverage this brain eye assumption. So on the gazelles here, uh, light usually comes from the top darker on the bottom. So here it's reversed, which helps them avoid predators. Okay, so the animals that, that developed this um, lived longer and passed those genes on. Not only are our brains wired to rapidly make connections to internal patterns or templates in order to achieve quick results, but the brain is an expert at photoshopping. So here's an example here for those of you who know Adobe Photoshop, how it can remove and fill in spots. Okay, well our brains do the same thing. We have this optical nerve at the back of our eye, and as most of you know, that's what they call the blind spot. Okay, we can't see anything there. Now, binocular vision helps correct that a little bit because you're seeing it from two different angles. But even if you close one eye, you don't see that blind spot generally. And the reason why is the brain fills in the empty area with assumptions about what uh, it thinks is supposed to be here. Um, Pareidolia is not limited to sight. We can also experience the phenomena with things that we hear. Electronic voice phenomena, for instance, is what we find utilized by ghost hunters. They play a bunch of static and they say, if you listen close, you can hear somebody talking or somebody's name. And, and it's usually through that suggestion or somebody that wants to assume that something's happening that, that uh, those words are found in there. And lastly, and we won't have time to go into this, and it's going to be um, part of my bigger project that I'm working on, is that we... Um, use this pattern making when it comes not only to visual and uh, uh, audio input, but also with our memories and at times when we use uh, just reasoning and logic. We often feel compelled to assign meaning to perceive patterns. Now this is known as apophenia, or white, what uh, Dr. Shermer referred to as agenticity. And, and basically that we've, we connect dots and we think there's a meaning to this. And it's, it's hard to avoid this. Sometimes the dots, it just seems too obvious. 
And of course, that's where the liability of the feature can emerge. We can assign meaning when no meaning is really there because the pattern of dots um, are based on our assumptions. While we can't always unsee a face in an inanimate object, but we can, we can consciously decide that the shapes only coincidentally seem to show a face and there's not something hidden. This is sometimes easier said than done because brains like to make sense of things and the best way to make sense of things is to fit them into these patterns. We cannot escape the limits of our own physical and cognitive parameters or get out of our own heads. We also cannot fully understand another person's suffering, joy, or thought process. It's not humanly possible to see, hear, and feel things as they really are. It is not humanly possible to fully understand God's mind and will, or even, I believe, to fully understand his communications. We are trapped in black and white TVs even though color signals go racing above our heads. The Heavenly Father is aware of our limitations and knows the factors which contribute to our limitations. Despite our deficiencies, however, he also knows how to communicate important directives as we are able to receive them. Telling your two-year-old not to let go of your hand in a crowding parking lot probably sounds to your child a lot more like a demand for blind obedience than advice based on logic and circumstance. As a child grows older and understands the risk of cars, your directive might morph to stay next to me or later watch out for the cars. While your guidance as a parent is the same in each instance of your child's life, the words, metaphors, examples, or logic you use change according to their stage of life. You as a parent know how to modify your communication according to your child's cognitive limitations. God does the same thing. Neil, I think, had this verse up uh, at the end of his presentation, DNC 124. Behold, I am God, and have spoken it. These commandments are of me, and were given unto my servants in their weakness, after the manner of their language, that they might come, and come to understanding. What this means is that God communicates to all people, and that includes prophets, through their own language. When we hear the word language, we generally associate the term with spoken or written words, Chinese or German or, or Klingon. But in the context of DNC 124, I believe that it refers to a much broader composition, it includes not only the spoken and written word, but context influenced by culture, education, era, as well as cognitive, visual, and auditory disabilities or vulnerabilities, including bias, assumption, and preconceived notions. Non-LDS theologians often refer to God's ability to tailor his communication to mortals as divine accommodation or less frequently as divine condensation, condensation, condescension, boy, can't pronounce that. As non-LDS theologian Stephen D. Bennon writes, divine accommodation alleges most simply that divine revelation is adjusted to the disparate intellectual and spiritual levels of humanity at different times in history. As near as I can tell, Latter-day Saints have not generally used the term accommodation to refer to God's method of adapting his word to his children. While the LDS and non-LDS terminology may differ, Latter-day Saints likewise believe that God accommodates his word to conform to the recipient of the word. Our ability to comprehend God and his directives is limited. God must descend to our level and speak our language in order for us to comprehend. We have a great example of human-generated accommodation in the Book of Mormon. When Ammon, one of the sons of Mosiah, went to teach the Lamanites, he was captured, brought before King Lamanai, and eventually assigned to guard the king's flocks. Ammon proved to be kind of a Nephite ninja, 
And after saving the king's flocks from some wannabe thieves, Amnon was brought again before the king, this time to explain why he was so tough. As Amnon began his explanation, he asked King Lamoni, Believest thou that there is a God? To which Lamoni answered, I do not know what that meaneth. And then Ammon said, Believest thou that there is a great spirit? And he said, Yea. And Ammon said, That is God. Now critics have tried to use this passage to say, See, the Book of Mormon teaches that God is spirit. Well, they completely missed the point of the exchange. Ammon was trying to explain who God was by teaching in concepts which Lamoni understood. Ammon accommodated his discourse so that it made sense to Lamoni. According to Lamoni, uh, how he understood God, which was a great spirit, Ammon's power came from that same being, the great spirit. The details could be explained later. The initial purpose was for Ammon to explain the basic principle. Some scholars have pointed out that Paul likewise accommodated his message according to his audience, tailoring his message and words depending on whether he was addressing Jews or Romans. The Romans, writes Dr. Stephen Bennon, still required much accommodation. Paul was waiting for faith to be first of all fixed in their hearts. He feared that he would prematurely and too quickly pull up the weeds and along with them the plants of sound instruction. My own studies have led me to conclude that divine accommodation is only half the communication dilemma between God and his children. God knows that we are incapable or unprepared to receive all of his teachings. Therefore, he, his, excuse me, his uh, communication accommodates our deficiencies. But the other problem is that our deficiencies impede our ability to properly hear, understand, or interpret those things which God attempts to convey. Paul told the Corinthians that we mortals see through a glass darkly, imperfectly, or dimly. It's kind of fuzzy. Even if God were to send a full-color image, our minds are like black-and-white TVs and are incapable of receiving the full spectrum of his word. This, of course, applies to each of us as we receive personal revelation as well as to prophets who receive revelation for the greater sphere of responsibility. Divine accommodation appears to be a mix of, divine, of God's divine accommodation, or God's communication appears to be a mix of God's divine accommodation and human can, humankind's recontextualization. Give you a second to read that one if you can. Uh, this is from Pickles. It says, I, I decided it was time to get out uh, the weed whacker and do a little trimming. The darn thing's not working, though. It's probably just out of string. And the other guy says, yeah, that could be it. Or it could be the fact that that's a metal detector, not a weed whacker. So uh, we, as human creatures, whose moral characteristics are the byproducts of millions of years of evolutionary development, we are unable to process ideas without recontextualizing them according to patterns. These patterns could be the result of nature or nurture, and likely represent both. Data, visual, auditory, recollective, contemplative, or even revelatory, must be processed by a human mind that will recontextualize the data according to internal patterns. Now, it's important to note that these patterns need not be rigid. Most people think about things differently at age 5, 25, 75. We change our minds and gather new data. New information can cause us to modify, reject, or replace previous patterns. When we uncompromisingly cling to patterns, however, we risk constructing a fundamentalist mindset. Now, I don't have time to go into all the details of this presentation. Um, if you buy the new book that's out there on Coford Books, Perspective of Mormon Theology, um, I actually 
again, from my bigger project, I, I address this a little bit more in my chapter, I think, therefore, I defend. Um, but basically, it talks about how we many times will force fit uh, data into the context of our own personal paradigms. Um, so from the perspective of an LDS scholarly and, apolog and apologetic studies, the recognition of our limited ability to accurately hear God's word is found in at least three layers, or what I would call the three R's. We have receiving the word of God, recording, and recontextualizing. So receiving is the ability to accurately and exhaustively receive the word of God, and it's dependent on the, person's, uh, the person that's receiving the information. Because all mortals have minds like a black and white TV, no human can fully uh, receive all the colored details of every revelation which God would like to share. Each individual person or prophet will be unique in their ability to accurately hear the word of God, the accuracy or completeness of which might depend on the person's sphere of responsibility, worthiness, education, culture, circumstance, and expectations. Recording. When scripture moves from mind to pen, another layer of, of complication is added to the communication process. God may help here, such as he helped Joseph Smith in translating the Book of Mormon, but the words must still be recording the weakness of human language. As I explained in greater detail, detail in shaken face syndrome, uh, words do not have a plain meaning. They only have meaning in context of the language, the culture, time frame, and so forth. Authors write from within both a culture and personal context, and readers automatically recontextualize those words according to their own culture and personal context. That was mentioned a couple of times today using a little different description. At least some ambiguity and mis misunderstanding or at least incomplete understanding, is inevitable. So even if a prophet received word-for-word -word instructions for God, from God, void of any association to the prophet's culture and personal views, those who read or hear the prophet's words would still be unable to completely understand the fullness of God's words because of their own personal worldviews and context inequalities. So we have time frame, culture, all those things that uh, go into the mix. Lastly, I don't know why that one's up there yet, but last we have recontextualizing. The basic, this basically refers to how prophet or reader of the scripture automatically will recontextualize. So that means to put it in, in their new context or reinterpret the word of God. My bigger project is working on showing some of the many examples we see uh, of this process in the scriptures and in LDS history. And like I said, it's still a work in progress. So I'll talk about a couple of them here. First, Here's a pretty innocuous one, and uh, Brother Erickson talked a little bit about DNC 17, and I'm going to latch onto that one as well. Um, so DNC 17, which was the uh, revelation that we have that basically was to the three witnesses that they would give a chance to, uh, to um, see the plates, um, the, the verse reads in part, Behold, I say unto you that you must rely upon my word, which if you do with full purpose of heart, you shall have a view of the plates, and also of the breastplate, the sword of Laban, the Urim and Thummim, which was given unto the brother of Jared upon the mount. And then similar promises that Brother Erickson mentioned was made in uh, the Book of Mormon itself. Now, Joseph dis uh, apparently dictated this in, in 1829 to Oliver Cowdery. The original is gone. We don't have it anymore. Um, in 1833, the saints gathered as many of the revelations of Joseph as they could to uh, basically put under the cover of the Book of Commandments. Um, but a number of revelations, including the one, the 1829 one, to the uh, witnesses was not included in it. Um, and, of course, the, the uh, project came to a halt 
when several hundred Missourians came and you know, stormed the printing press and destroyed the press and, and the books. There's only 30 known copies of the Book of Commandments today. So the saints tried again, this time with the Doctrine and Covenants. Somewhere, sometime between November 1834 and the publication of the Doctrine and Covenants, Joseph Scribe, Frederick G. Williams, created a copy of the 1829 Revelation. So it was still around, wasn't included in the uh, Book of Commandments, and then uh, the scribe Fred, Frederick Williams made a copy. And that copy is what was used for chapter 17 in the Doctrine and Covenants, and it's in Williams' handwriting. We know that the earlier 1829 copy actually existed because in 1831, Ezra Booth, he was a Methodist minister who became Mormon and then he left the church. He uh, was, uh, had an exchange with uh, an editor in the Ohio Star and he mentioned that he had an opportunity to examine a commandment given to the witnesses previous to their seeing the place. So we know there was an original, it's gone, uh, Williams makes a copy, that's put in the Doctrine and Covenants. Okay, so to summarize the timeline, Joseph dictated Revelation to three witnesses in 1829. The Revelation was never included in the Book of Commandments. Around the end of 1834, Williams made a copy of the Revelation and used it for the master of what became DNC 17. Now, why is this important? What does it tie into my topic here? The 1834 manuscript copy of the Revelation uses anachronistic language. In other words, language that shouldn't have been in the original 1829 Revelation. Okay, uh, it's important first to remember that the Latter-day Saints, uh, Joseph, when Oliver went from original manuscript to printer's manuscript, he corrected things. And of course, of course Joseph Smith corrected things in subsequent editions of, of the Book of Mormon. Um, and of course, you know, even in the uh, um, Joseph Smith translation. And the church now, you know, we have many editions of the scriptures with corrections that have come. So, so it's not like this is unheard of. In, eight, in uh, the 1834 Williams copy of the 1829 Revelation, we read that the three witnesses would be privileged to see the Urim and Thummim. In 1829, however, the two-stone translating device buried with the plates was not yet called the Urim and Thummim. When Joseph retrieved the Book of Mormon plates, he also found a breastplate and the Nephi interpreters. In LDS literature, the interpreters were not known as the Urim and Thummim until roughly 1833. From 1827, when Joseph actually took possession of the plates and interpreters, until about 1832 or 33, the translating device was known as the Spectacles. Evidence suggests, therefore, that the current rendition of the 1829 Revelation anachronistically refers to the spectacles as the Urim and Thummim. We don't have the 1829, we have the 1834 Williams copy. And he says that he saw that um, they would be privileged to see the Urim and Thummim, but that was not a word that could have been used in the 1829 version. The emendation was made either by Williams, a previous editor, or Joseph Smith himself in order to recontextualize the revelation to the current usage of terms. If the term Urim and Thummim was anachronistic, for 1829, it is equally anachronistic in Joseph Smith's recollections as we have in Joseph Smith History 135. Joseph Smith talks about how the angel Moroni referred to the Urim and Thummim. Okay? So what's happening is it was known as spectacles. But by around 1833, everybody was referring it to the Urim and Thummim. So Joseph Smith and everybody else started recontextualizing the spectacles, the interpreters, as the Urim and Thummim. 
Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with using familiar terms to describe foreign objects, events, places, people, animals. We've heard about that today. If you go on a modern cruise, you might set sail near sunset, but cruise ships don't have sails. Your computer likely has a save icon, shows a floppy disk. You know, who, who uses floppy disks anymore, right? And is it wrong to refer to Roman soldiers, even though the word soldier is a French word that was created at least 600 years after there were Roman soldiers? By the time Joseph Smith recounted his history, and by the time the Doctrine and Covenants was printed, the spectacles were known among Latter-day Saints as Urim and Thummim. And so that was the term used. But again, it's, it's not the original, it's a recontextualization. So that's just one kind of innocuous example of what, um, how our minds work to, uh, in the gospel even, to use new terminology. Applying the reception, recording, and recontextualization approach to the Book of Mormon helps us to understand in part why there are different views of the Book of Mormon geography. Joseph apparently didn't receive revelation as to the geographic location for Nephite events, but was left to recontextualize from what he believed about the world about him. In Joseph's day, many Americans believed the Native Americans were descendants of the Tantalos tribes of Israel. The Book of Mormon was brand new, and while it was instrumental in helping to launch a new religion, there weren't any real scholarly studies on the book. And in fact, statistics show that the Book of Mormon was not quoted from for a long time, very often, pretty infrequently. It was usually the Old and New Testament. So that indicates maybe there was a lot of study going on in the Book of Mormon. It wasn't until later Latter-day Saints came around and started really putting scholarly studies to it. So in Joseph's time, Joseph and the rest of the saints, they took this new book with what little bit they knew about it and had to fit it into their worldview. When Joseph translated the Book of Mormon, the saints learned that the theories about the ancient old world inhabitants living in the Americas was true. In the language of the early Latter-day Saints, every mound was somehow linked to the Nephites or Lamanites, and all ancient bones on earth were undoubtedly evidence of the Lamanite and Nephite wars. In 1834, while traveling to Missouri and Zion's camp, Joseph and several other members passed through Pike County, Illinois, which, dotted, which was dotted with Indian burial grounds bones and other artifacts. Writing to his wife, Emma, he recounted how his group had wandered over the plains of Nephites and the mounds of the Book of Mormon people, picking up their skulls and their bones as proof of their divine authenticity. Joseph, like all people, recontextualized the bones. In this case, they belonged to Nephites. Similarly, the shape of North and uh, South America with a narrow neck right in the middle that's now modern-day Panama, that was too easy to connect the dots. You, you almost were forced into it until you took a deeper reading. Land northward, land southward, narrow neck of the land, it's too obvious. The dots are there. Doesn't mean it's a real picture, but that's what our brains do. We find the same thing in, throughout the different scriptures in the Bible, and Ben Spackman speaking tomorrow, and he'll likely touch on this in his talk, but the Noachian flood... Um, that cover the whole earth, its treatment in the Book of Mormon is also a likely consequence of the same limited revelatory process. Many Latter-day Saints have found support for a global flood within the pages of the Nephite record, but a closer examination reveals that such a conclusion is not required. In Ether, for example, we read that, this is from Ether 13:12. after the waters had receded from off the face of this land, it became a choice land above all others. Well, we know that the Jaredites, as interpreted by Moroni, were familiar with Noah's Ark. We read that in, in verse 6-7, Ether. So these verses sim 
versus imply a worldwide global flood. It's important to remember, however, that the Book of Mormon peoples didn't experience the flood themselves. Neither Moroni nor Ether would have known from personal experience that the waters receded from the face of the New World. They believe that is what happened, but that's not the same to claim that they were eyewitnesses to it. It's entirely possible that either Ether, Moroni, or even Joseph Smith included the comment about the waters receding from the land based on the understanding of the ancient New World and according to their interpretation of Noah's flood as recorded in Genesis. If we apply the same framework to other scriptures, we open the doors to greater enlightenment and wisdom as well. I suspect that Ben Spackman will also give us some examples of uh, Genesis and how it ties to the Hebrew world, so I won't go into that. And uh, Ugo Perego's talk tomorrow uh, about evolution and how um, the creation was probably recontextualized uh, for those that re uh, wrote Genesis. The Book of Abraham, both believers and critics typically bring a set of assumptions to the study of the translation of the Joseph Smith papyri. Critics approach the translation already knowing that Joseph Smith couldn't translate Egyptian and unsurprisingly find evidence that favors their expectations. Many believers, on the other hand, approach the study of the Joseph Smith papyri with the assumptions that God divinely revealed an authentic ancient Book of Mormon text to Joseph Smith and unsurprisingly find uh, evidence which supports their assumptions. My project will address the possibility that there is more going on than is adequately addressed by either assumption and posits that the translation, which I believe came from divine revelation, may be a 19th century inspired recontextualization of an ancient recontextualization of an inspired narrative. Say that 10 times real fast. <laughs> I thought I was going to put that on there so you could follow along, so I'll do it one more time here a 19th century inspired recontextualization of an ancient recontextualization of an inspired narrative. Um, yeah, I got a couple of slides out of place. The Joseph Smith translation, if we uh, recognize the triple R infrastructure and revelation, we can appreciate that the Joseph Smith translation is possibly an inspired 19th century recontextualization of the Bible, not necessarily a translation, a retranslation of missing parts. So God could have given him, um, he, we, Joseph Smith had already received new revelation, and so God could have helped him plug that new inf uh, information into correcting how it made sense to a modern audience of what the Bible would mean to us today. Um, early LDS history, Brigham Young was very, very likely recontextualized common Protestant beliefs about African Americans and applied that recontextualization to the prohibition of black members holding the priesthood. Later Mormons recontextualized verses from the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Book of Abraham to maintain and defend that prohibition. The Word of Wisdom temple ceremonies, entire and plural marriage practice were all likely recontextualizations by prophets and members in a thin synthesis of cultural expectations and assumptions and actual revelation. When Joseph Smith received his first vision, it seems inescapable to me that his vision had to be framed from within a context, a recontextualization of what Joseph Smith might have expected or understood about God and Jesus. Christians are those who typically see, either automatically or with a bit of suggestion, the face of Jesus in burnt toast. If a baby boomer, who for some reason had never had any exposure to Jesus or pictures of Jesus, saw the burnt toast, he might see the face of a 1960s rocker from Woodstock. This is what we expect to see. 
Catholics are more likely persons to see the figure of Mary in water stains. In a, night, in, excuse me, in a 2007 Fair Mormon Conference address, Blake Osler suggested that we adopt religious inclusivism and recognize that God can share light to, to people in many different ways and under many different circumstances. Here's, oh, let me, here, where's Stephen Smoot? Uh, who, who can tell me the very right one? What do you see there? You see any kind of face or image? Who, who said that? Somebody shouted out. Job of the Hut. If you'd never seen Star Wars, you wouldn't see that, right? Okay, it's because, again, there's assumptions that are inside of us that we can see this and make it jump out. So, um, you know, of course, the same thing you could see uh, Sylvester Stallone in it and so forth. Um, okay, so here's the quote from uh, Blake Osler. He says, um, now we may, he recognized that God can share light to people in different ways. Now we may be called into question, he wrote, if someone has a vision, for instance, of the Virgin Mary, because I don't believe that the LDS believe that the Virgin Mary puts in many appearances. However, I suggest that we look beyond what divides us and look to inclusivism. That is, what is it that they have learned? What does their religious experience teach them? Because God will adapt his message to any culture and any means that he can to increase the light of a person. I think that's great advice. Because certainly God, as well as the human brain, can recontextualize spiritual promptings for the Catholic that involve the manner of their language and for Latter-day Saints, whether it's 19th century or 21st century. Critics like to connect the dots between environmental parallels in the Book of Mormon or Joseph's revelations, thereby creating a pattern which they believe demonstrates a cause and effect relationship. Joseph eclectically selected from the teachings or even names from his environment as he assembled and solidified his new religion. But this is not the only way to connect the dots and to address any parallels. I maintain that because, Joseph's, because Joseph was a cultural, spiritual, and biological product of his environment, there was no other way for him to receive, record, and recontextualize God's words without involving the manner of his language. There is no other way for humans to share or even understand and internalize information, worldly or otherworldly, without filtering and framing that information according to what their brains allow them to perceive and assume. We have black and white receptors, even when God communicates in 8K color. Revelation will unavoidably, unavoidably and necessarily reflect, to some degree, the receiver's human limitations. The Book of Mormon reflects the recontextualization of not only each author and each redactor, the editors like uh, Moroni and, and Mormon, but also that of the translator and each reader. Joseph's revelations as well as his speculations are also colored by the patina of his environment because he was human and that's how the mind works. But the tinting of mortal minds doesn't preclude a belief that those divine instructions also reflect divine input. People tend to look like their parents. I'm told that I look like my dad, but that doesn't mean that I also don't look like my mom. I'm a blend of both of them, just as the receiving, recording, and recontextualization of revelation is a blend of both divine instruction and a filtering of the receiver's humanity. The Lord in his wisdom knows that his children are unable to escape from the boundaries of their psychological, cognitive, and cultural enclosure. 
while they remain mortal. He knows that they will get things wrong, describe things inaccurately, point to non-existent evidence while rejecting very real evidence, and will at times make a mess of the historical recitations of the stories that tell of God's encounters with past generations. Knowing all of the challenges, God also knows that the only way that we can understand the important and basic principles of discipleship is by having his teachings revealed in the manner of our language so that the weak things will be, um, become strong enough to put us on a course that bring us back home to the Father. And uh, this last verse, and I'll close with this, is from Ether 12:27. If men come unto me, I will show unto them their weakness. I give unto men weakness that they may be humbled, and my grace is sufficient for all men that humble themselves before me. For if they humble themselves before me and have faith in me, then, I will, then will I make weak things become strong unto them. Thank you. Is Adam on Diamond a possible recontextualization rather than an historical site? Um, yeah, that's actually one area I'm working on. And I think that there's a lot uh, in, in the history of Joseph Smith. And like I so said, sometimes there's, it's a blend and a fine line of things that are revealed, um, true things that are revealed, but we still have to put it in a format that we can understand. And so I'll, I'll put that as a, as a, not fully answered. <laughs> uh, you, in my opinion, did Joe Smith start calling the spectacles because those of his day were calling it so, or because those of his day started calling spectacles Urim and Thummim because Joe Smith was calling it? So which came first? Well, um, and I actually had to cut in order of interest of time, that the Urim and Thummim, um, in Joseph Smith's day, uh, there were many books, um, written by uh, scholars, re uh, religious um, pundits that talked about it as a means of divine communication. And they were seeing it, of course, from the Bible. So I think, um, and I think it was, I'm trying to remember now if it was W.W. Phelps, it was, it was uh, from an article in 1833 where we find the, the first usage of the term Urim and Thummim, and he says it would have been something like the Urim and Thummim. And I think people said, oh yeah, that, that's, that's good. And so whether he came up with it or not, it's hard to say. I think that it's possible, you know, we never know if Joe Smith was the first to suggest that, but the reason they called it uh, spectacles is because that's what it's looked like. Or so we've been told. Again, that's an interesting part of my project that I'm working on. We'll, we'll, we'll come around to that at some point when I'm finished. Um, you seem to wholeheartedly accept the scientific assumptions about human evolution. While I'm interested in Hugo Perego's talk on this topic tomorrow, I would be interested to hear a brief explanation of your belief in evolution in the context of faith. Um, and I won't jump in this because I think Hugo's going to do a wonderful job on this tomorrow. Um, I've, I've changed through the years. My assumptions have changed. When I was younger, I kind of had the creationist view. And as I get older, I think that, like I said at the beginning, truth is truth. That God reveals things through Latter-day Saints, through scientists, uh, maybe through atheists, definitely through Catholics and Buddhists and so forth. Truth is out there. And um, we have to fight really hard to uh, stick to any kind of 
view that doesn't, that is not supported by evolution. It, it, there's too many forms of uh, convergence of science that point to it, in my opinion. And I think it's uh, completely acceptable and falls in line with uh, the gospel. And that's, again, uh, the, the, uh, at least one of the chapters that I'm working on. If everyone prophets included see through a glass darkly in what we individually and collectively decide is valid truth, inescapable, arbitrary. Yeah, it's a good question. You know, how do we know? And I think that the key is that the Lord knows that we're, and that's why faith comes in. The Lord knows that we're not going to have that sure knowledge. Um, we're going to stumble. But it's a matter of where our hearts are. Are our hearts aligned with the principle of the gospel? Are we really trying? Are we recognizing our limitations? And are we trying to understand the will of God? And there's some people that I believe that, are, that will stumble, that will... Um, Initially, I said we can never know another person's joy, suffering, uh, pain, and so forth. And I think the same thing's true for those that fall away. We don't know why they fell away. We could guess, but we don't know. We're not in their shoes. We don't have their cognitive limitations, emotional uh, baggage, and so forth. We have our own. We can't get outside of our head. And so we have to trust God that if there were factors in that person's life that just made it overwhelming that they had to fall away, uh, the Lord's loving. He, he's going he's gonna to be able to, un, to unravel these things. That's, that's not our job. We can help people along to show here's the other side of the coin. Here's how we can look at different things. But that's, that's I think, one of the big reasons we're told not to judge. We, we can't get inside of their heads. How do we show LDS uh, researchers are as trustworthy as non-LDS researchers. I spend at least a good chapter of that in my, the book that I'm working on and quite a bit of it in Shaken Face Syndrome. Every person on this planet has bias. You and that's one of the things I talk about in my previous book is that the critics often say, well, you can't trust the Latter-day Saint scholars because they're Mormons. Of course, they're going to stick with the story. Well, that, that, that's meaningless. Everybody has a perspective. Everybody has a bias. We're all coming from a position, um, and it might be somewhere in between there, but we can't escape it. Um, last one, I guess, here. Can we have an enduring testimony of the gospel without accepting the atonement of Jesus Christ? Um, again, that's a tough one, because I think it, it comes down to Christ. We have to have a testimony of Christ. But why does somebody not have a testimony of Christ? They and God know. We don't. It's not for up to us to decide. We have to look into ourselves. You know, I mean, we're in this all together as a family, as God's children, but we have to work individually. I mean, it's, it, ultimately, it comes down between us and God. There, there's no shirt tails to ride on to get uh, to celestial glory. We have to strengthen ourselves and help to strengthen those around us, but we can only lead horses to water. We can't make them drink. So um, we put faith in God that, that he'll sort this all out. He, he knows what's going on in their hearts and minds. We don't. Thank you. Thanks.